Hi friends, and just a quick note before we jump into today's amazing episode, I just wanted to share that Dr. Alex's segments of this podcast are not up to the studio sound quality that we pride ourselves on at Open House, but we made a decision internally that this episode is just too good to shelve and there is so much valuable information inside of it. So thank you for your patience during his segments of the episode and I look forward to us being back to original sound quality from next week onwards. And until then, I'll catch you guys on the flip side. Love you lots. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Open House Podcast. Now today I'm excited about this episode for a number of reasons. The first reason that I'm excited about today's episode is that I have not one but two guests. Now the first guest is Dr. Alex Melkumian. I found him on LinkedIn and I have been stalking his stuff for ages. He practices out of Los Angeles in cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral finance, and neuroeconomics. And he works to help clients gain a deeper understanding of how their finances are experienced from before they were born until the present moment. So anyone that listens to our podcast knows that that is literally all we ever talk about at Open House, but we've never, ever spoken about it in terms of money. So I am super, super excited to have Dr. Alex here with us today. And I also have Ellie Austin Williams, founder of This Girl Talks Money and the Money Unfiltered podcast. So Ellie is a financial educator, a writer and a speaker who's on a mission to open up the conversation about money and just to normalise it as if you would when you talk to your friends about anything. So not only is Ellie amazing in this space, but she's also one of my very best friends. And Ellie has seen me through some of the best and worst times of my life. So between Dr. Alex and Ellie here, I have no doubt that this is going to be an incredibly helpful, informative, but also juicy and emotional episode. So first of all, thank you so much to both of you for joining me. And today we're going to be talking about all things money, beliefs about money, the emotions connected to money. And we're even going to talk about the connection between money, happiness, sex, relationships, and more. So first up over to Dr. Alex, I want to start with this foundational belief around the beliefs that we all hold around money. Now, this is something that we always talk about on the podcast. And much like your attachment style can be fixed or is developed, you know, around the age of two, and your beliefs of love are often fixed thereafter. I read a study that suggested that money habits are formed in early childhood too. So I would love it if you could just start today's episode by telling us about where the foundations of money come from. Louise, thank you so much for having me. And what a great uh, kickoff point. I think where we want to start is uh, discussion of intergenerational narratives. That's a big word to start with, but it basically means that messages that we receive from our parents, our culture, as early as one, two, and uh, years old and, and on, definitely influence our financial behavior, financial beliefs, and our experience of money. And one of the things that really uh, was a big aha moment for me when I went back to school to study financial psychology was this idea of the fact that we have a relationship with money. And the first question I started to ask myself was, where does our relationship with money start? And the answer to that, through some research and digging, I realized that our relationship with money starts in utero. 
And it may not be as a direct relationship with money, but the reason why I say that is because pregnant mothers experience financial stress. And that financial stress, therefore, increases their cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone. And so if you're a um, innocent <laughs> fetus just living in your mom's womb, all of a sudden you're, you're experiencing all these spikes in cortisol. And so you may not know what's actually happening, but the ups and downs of uh, the nervous system uh, being spiked by cortisol is something that is definitely, unfortunately, an open narrative to our relationship with money. And that's where it all starts. I am so incredibly happy that you've just referenced nervous system in the first three minutes of the episode because you are talking my language here. We've done a lot of episodes on attachment style already where we talk about exactly this, about how, you know, the stress hormones in utero develop our nervous systems. It's when the foundations of our nervous systems are being set down. And I love it that, you know, as a psychologist today, you are looking into these things because I just think it's so important to look at the real root of these things. And like you said, the root goes so much deeper than perhaps like becoming a teenager when you first start to get your hands on money. What's happening in like early, early childhood? Is that a really influential period too? Very much so. And I think you're really taking that narrative and expanding on it. So obviously starting with the fetus, the relationship between the primary caregiver, usually the mom, uh, is one of the most important relationships that we have in our life. And this actually goes right into the attachment theory that you just brought up. And if our parent uh, or pr that primary caregiver is oftentimes anxious and nervous and preoccupied with survival and making ends meet, that child at one, two, four or six years old is picking up certain messages and certain energies that uh, another kid who is growing up in a very secure, securely attached uh, environment does not pick up. And so uh, as one of my colleagues at Combs who wrote a book on financial uh, attachment and attachment theory, uh, he referenced this exact point that our attachment style to our caregivers is very similar to that of an attachment to money. And if we have a secure or unsecure attachment with our caregiver, we're much more likely to have a similar attachment style to money. Where I want to start is discussing the parallel between the attachment that we have with our primary caregiver, which usually is our mom, and the attachment we have to money. And it's almost like it's our adult mother <laughs> uh, is what we can sort of parallel uh, our money relationship to. And uh, the way we attach to money, again, mimics a lot of either secure or unsecure attachment style to our primary caregiver. I think as we are talking about, you know, that relationship between our parents, our caregivers and how we relate to money, a question that comes up a lot of the time is how our emotions influence how we behave with money. And I think it kind of is a perfect opportunity here to speak to you about that connection between those emotions and what we do with our money, whether we spend it, we save it, whether we feel anxious, whether we feel excited about it. And I know that your emotions drive a lot of 
decisions when you're talking about money. So a lot of those financial big decisions that we make or small decisions are influenced by how we're feeling about money, our relationship with money. And also that money is the root of a lot of financial stress and anxiety for lots of people, especially at the moment. We're seeing that so much. Um, I'm seeing it all the time in my DMs. People are feeling so anxious about money. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about why that is and that close connection between our emotions and our finances. Yeah, so I think our, we're emotional beings. We're human first and foremost, right? So how we experience our outside world is greatly governed by our emotions. And our, our emotions are, uh, are there to protect us, right? They're either motivating us to move mountains or <laughs> to run away initially from tigers and lions, that survival perspective, the evolutionary perspective. But obviously, now that we're not running away from <laughs> any any animals, money is now the modern day's survival. And how we're able to interface with money on a daily basis greatly impacts our emotional life, our emotional well-being. Can you even picture, you know, not dealing with money for a day or a week, let alone a month? What do you think? I mean, no. Um, <laughs> I think when you don't deal with money, yeah, it really leads to a lot of anxiety. But I think what's so interesting is that so many people do bury their heads when it comes to money and they avoid it and let it creep up and spiral out of control and only do face it when it's like really bad or they are forced to confront it. And I think that's one of those things about human psychology that is so fascinating is is how we allow ourselves to avoid those things that we don't want to face up to. And money really is one of those, because a lot of the time we think that pain of looking at the finances and facing up to the fact is going to be worse than the avoidance. But actually, ultimately, you're probably causing more pain long term. So thank you, Ellie. I love that answer. And what you're talking about really delves into the research done by a couple of brilliant economists. One is Daniel Kahneman, and the other one is Richard Thaler. Kahneman's work was so revolutionary because one of the findings that his research produced is that 90% of our financial decisions are made based in emotion and only 10 in logic. And so if we really let that sink in. Our emotions are hugely impactful in making the smallest or the biggest decisions, uh, whether it's, you know, why did you have what you have for breakfast? Why did you spend uh, as much money as you did on breakfast to how much money should I uh, allocate to rent? And uh, how much money should I spend on, you know, frivolous shopping? Obviously, there's guidelines like 40, 30, 20 budgets and all of these things. But what we know in the financial planning world and economics is that um, the hardest thing to do is to stick to that plan. And emotions, when they're not uh, managed well, are the main reason or one of the two main reasons, the other one being belief, that, uh, you know, our plans get derailed. Right. And so we really have to delve into 
understanding our emotional lives and, and the tie uh, between money and emotions to really be able to not only make financial plans and stick to the practical approach, but have an emotional strategy and an emotional approach, because that's going to be just as important, if not more important to the success of that overall financial plan. Okay, I'm going to jump in here and answer that same question, because I think I come from such the opposite side of the spectrum from Ellie. Okay, so the question was, can you go a day without thinking about money? And I am going to just say this straight up for all the people that I know are out there like me, which is that yes, I can very easily go a day without thinking about money because I am the kind of person that just uses my Apple Pay without knowing how much money is in my bank account. I buy things just because like I think I have money in my bank account and you know I work very hard so normally I have enough money. But what I will tell you is that there's almost certainly a time every single month when I will go to hit that Apple Pay and I'll be like oh shit like my card just got declined buying my fourth coffee of the day also tied to emotions because I'm impulsive and I'm like I deserve this like oh this I deserve this like I need this coffee so I just want to say yes I am on the opposite end of the spectrum and I remember when I used to run another business I often wouldn't look at the bank account like because I didn't have to like you know I'd go into it to make the payments and I'd do the payroll I wouldn't check into it every single day like that just I was not money minded in any way, shape or form. And since being friends with Ellie and learning from her, I, I'm a lot better now at like checking frequently to understand like the status of what's going on in my bank account. So I don't get to the point that things get so bad that, you know, it ends up being a downward spiral. And I think my final point here is that I absolutely love the 90% emotion and 10% logic point. And I just want to share a tiny story here, which is that for anyone listening that doesn't know, and for Dr. Alex, who won't know, I am four and a half years sober. So no drugs anymore, no alcohol anymore, no cigarettes anymore. And when I went through catastrophic heartbreak last year, and my coping mechanisms of drinking drugs and smoking were no longer available to me, I thought it was so interesting to see that I was heartbroken, living at my parents' house, locked inside during the pandemic, and all I did was online shop. And I am talking, it was ridiculous. Like my parents and my brother and his wife would joke that I'd become like the post office of the local neighborhood. Because the amount of like, the amount of deliveries that were coming and going, like I know the guy that delivers them, he knows my name, like it became ridiculous. And I think that I'd love to just talk a little bit around, do you think that people use shopping as a coping mechanism? I think the answer is very simple. Uh, all we have to do is look at the stock market and the returns that Amazon has been getting all the way from the beginning of the pandemic all the way to now. Their stock has risen uh, exponentially. So I think the answer is yes. Obviously, being a little facetious, but the reality uh, to that to that answer is retail therapy, which is a term <laughs> that we actually use to sort of diminish the sting of being called a shopaholic. So retail therapy now is a more normalized uh, behavior, right? But it's something that we definitely engage in uh, as a culture, whether it's you know North American or European. I know you guys are in the UK. It's very much 
the thing to do. And we're not necessarily mindful of, you know, how much we're spending. We're just coping with our, our feelings a lot of time using retail therapy. But on the much deeper level, on the neuro, neurological level, money, food, and sex are processed by the same part of our brain called the basal ganglia, which is located in the emotional part of the brain, the limbic system. And so it's no wonder that the way we interface with food or our relationship with food, again, there's parallels between that and our money or our relationship with sex and intimacy is also parallel to our relationship with money. And so if we don't feel good about ourselves, if there's an emotional, highly emotional situation happening, like you just described, and I really appreciate your transparency and vulnerability, I think we grab towards the first thing that's in our sight. And, you know, for a lot of people, it is that retail therapy. Yeah. I mean, I will be the first person to admit that I am a big fan of sex, food and money. Big fan of all of them. Don't even know which one I would say I like the most. It's <laughs> probably food, if I'm honest. Ellie and I love food so much. We just eat constantly. Like I, I, people are probably going to pick this soundbite up and I'm going to be like, I regret, I regret saying that. But honestly, we love, we love food so much. And yeah, I just think that the impulsivity that's, that's the same across those is something that I have dealt with a lot in my life. I would say I'm much less impulsive than I've ever been. I think going to therapy and generally just calming my whole being through doing the work and regulating my nervous system. My conflict is calmer. My relationships are calmer. My relationship with money is calmer. My relationship with food is calmer, et cetera, et cetera. But what are your thoughts on impulsivity and money? Is there any psychology around like the impulsiveness of spending? It absolutely speaks to the exact point that I just brought up, the neurological piece, because that part of the brain is also involved in uh, the reward pathways and the reward system. So all our brain wants for us to experience is the reward dopamine hit, whether it's from food, from sex or from money. So in a way, our brain may not even differentiate whether it is food, sex, or money. All it wants is just that dopamine hit. And it, it will convince us, rationalize, uh, you know, create certain narratives and beliefs in order to perpetuate and keep that narrative going so that the dopamine hits can keep coming. Hence, that impulsivity keeps the, the narrative going. Yeah, I completely relate to that. And like Louise said, I chase that dopamine here. I think we all do. One thing I want to ask about is this real, like, deep-rooted belief that seems to perpetuate in society that if we could be richer, we would be happier. More money will make us happy. And of course, there is a element of truth. And every time I talk about this, I'm always very careful to say this because there is a point below which your income is really causing you trouble. But there have also been these studies and they've been done in the US and in the UK, which have looked at if your income keeps increasing exponentially, your happiness does as well. And there seems to be this wide conclusion that there reaches a cap and that cap is actually lower, I think, than people think it is, where it starts to 
level out. And then actually people often become unhappier once they exceed that cap a lot. And I just like to look a little bit at why that is. Why is it that we are so obsessed with this idea that more money will make us happier? And yet when we make more money, we don't get happier. Thank you for bringing that up. Just uh, was reviewing an article that references that exact uh, statistic, which came from, I think, a Gallup poll that asked, I think, 1.7 million people worldwide about what financial satiation actually is the term that they used, or basically financial satisfaction. How much money would they be satisfied with? And as you said, there is uh, definitely a number below which people will will be completely unhappy and will be stuck in survival mode. But there is a range to that number. And what the research has found that worldwide, the number for financial satisfaction or financial satiation was at about a hundred thousand. I think it was $95,000 a year. Uh, the caveat is that uh, obviously it really matters where you live. If you live in the UK in London or in LA, cost of living is much different or even in San Francisco. <laughs> I think the anecdotal uh, statistic is that somebody mentioned 250,000 being poverty level in San Francisco. The point is that uh, I think 95,000 or about 100,000 is that the threshold for financial satiation. And the same study actually outlined the fact that more money actually creates more stress and less happiness. So there is this almost fine balance between Uh, emotional well-being and happiness and the amount of money that you make. And the reason is, I think you asked that question, why is it that if we perpetually make more money, why are we less happy? Why are we more emotional about it? And it's because I think the amount of responsibility people feel, the amount of obsession that people feel about making more money becomes all uh, end all and be all of their existence. And I'll talk a little bit about the research of Brad Klontz, one of the pioneers of financial psychology and financial therapy. And he basically outlined that all uh, money beliefs fall into four different categories. And there are money prudence, which are the people who are prudent and uh, frugal. Money avoidance are people who are too scared to look at their finances and would rather just play the ostrich game. And the other two are money worship and money status, and they're very much linked and correlated. I live here in Los Angeles, where money status and money worship are on full display. I live in a neighborhood that's adjacent to the one of the most posh neighborhoods in all of Los Angeles, where the Kardashians and Justin Bieber have homes. When I drive out in my little car, I can see some of these Lambos and, you know, the the super expensive cars. And it's all right there. Some of these celebrities and folks really bought into the money worship, money status mentality and belief system. And it comes with a price of losing sleep over uh, losing money and prioritizing money over maybe other things. And uh, I think Louise brought up this idea of balance. 
you know, some of the hardcore entrepreneurs don't live in a, a balanced life. They live a very much 90% work, you know, and 10% balance with family and things like that. And there's just, there's a cost that we, uh, that we have to pay. And if you want to live a more balanced life, it may mean that you would have to prioritize some of those things, which will uh, come at a cost of like making less money. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing there that really stands out to me, it reminds me of a study that uh, Salary Finance did. And it looked at the basically level of financial worries that people have at different levels of income. And it really shocked me that, again, there was almost like a kind of mountain shape in the charts that obviously people that earned below average amounts had a significant amount of financial worry, financial anxiety. And then as people earned slightly above average into maybe the medium range, people were feeling less anxious, had less concerned. And then once you hit again, the people that were earning six figures, which, you know, over here is a minority because like, the way our salaries work, like not that many people earn six figures. I think you're in like the top, like less than 5% of earners if you're earning over £100,000 a year. But the level of financial anxiety started to go up again, and it kept increasing from £100,000 upwards. And it's something I've seen come up a few times where I think because there's so much focus, understandably on people that do not have enough money, that they are worried because they're living like on the breadline almost. There's so much focus on that, that people sometimes think that you can't have financial anxiety when you're a high earner. But from my experience, what I've seen, that is absolutely not true. And I, yeah, it sounds like that's what you've also seen in the work you do too. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and again, you know, both studies that you and I just referenced, uh, speak exactly to that point that there is a bell curve to our overall financial well-being and overall life satisfaction, and things really start to go down tremendously with increased earnings past a certain point. Okay, I am so glad that Ellie is here. I knew that Ellie was going to be a good addition to this podcast. I'm learning so much from both of you, and already just thank you so much for everything you've shared on this journey um, that we've been on together so far today. I also want to tie this into relationships because everyone knows that is my area of expertise. And I've had a lot of relationships break down because of how much I work, how much money I make, being a female breadwinner in my relationships. And as I spoke to Ellie more and more, I started to learn that actually money is a huge reason for relationship breakdown and also divorce. So I would love to ask you, Dr. Alec. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. What 
do you see in practice around this really being a driver? Do you really see people divorcing over conflicting money beliefs? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So thank you for bringing that in. It's such an important topic. In America, there is uh, the Psychological Association of uh, America, and they produce a yearly study called the Financial Stress in America Survey. And on that survey, yearly, money is the number one stressor. But what's interesting is that if you look at the top three, it's money, then it's divorce or relationships. And then the third one, I think, is employment. So if you actually look at the thread (laughs) that goes through all three of the top stressors, it's actually money itself. So in a way, money is has this all consuming grip on our well being and our, our lives, where we are so stressed, we are constantly thinking about or concerned about money, or if we're not, in a way, we could be, this could be a pain point that we're unfortunately avoiding. Where that leads to is, you know, these conflicting uh, messages and, and fights that, you know, my clients have, couples that I work with, or individual clients who are in relationship, where they bring in a lot of different narratives that delve into money being at the root of a lot of their conflicts. And what's interesting, one of my colleagues, Deborah Kaplan, uh, an amazing researcher, and uh, she wrote a book called Sex, Money, and Power, I think is the title of the book. She talks about that as humans or, or as humans in relationships don't fight about money specifically. But what we fight about is the meaning of money to each individual person. So if money to me means security, but to my partner, money means freedom and fun, we're going to clash heads and battle in our relationship. And so that's oftentimes what we see that uh, in a way opposites attract, uh, in a way, as you mentioned, Louise, you're the breadwinner. And uh, a lot of times it sounds like you mentioned that you're in a relationship with significant others who maybe not prioritize uh, their finances as much as you do, or at least providing as much as you do. So <clears throat> that idea of opposites attracting is there's always a spender and a saver in, in most couples. And those conflicts usually have a pretty predictable form to them. And that predictable form is we need to save money and all you do is spend, 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 or the opposite of that, which is I want to just not feel like I'm being controlled by you all the time. Every time I'm trying to make a purchase, if I want to buy a new new pair of shoes or a new TV or whatever that is. And it almost doesn't matter what the items are that we're buying. It really is much deeper than that. And it's the underlying narrative that keeps swinging back and forth. Fascinating. I have so many thoughts. And I'm just going to bolt on to what you said there when it's not, you know, it's often not about the money. It's often not about the handbag. It's often about the dynamic in the relationship. I think that is such an important takeaway from today's episode. And the other thing that I have learned is that 
what is your driver behind money? Because like you said, it's often not about the money. And for me, a huge part of my journey in therapy has been, is this about validation? Do I actually want to build a business that makes lots of money? Or am I doing this because I want my father to love me and I want my friends to respect me and I want to feel like I did it on my own. Like I did this without anyone. That's a big one of my problems is like, I'm not going to take money from anyone. I'm going to build this business on my own. Like I'm on my own independent woman. That comes from a place of trauma, right? Like a lot of independent men and women out there, actually that financial independence is also often coming from a place of trauma. So I just think my key takeaway from this section is it's about looking deeper in your relationship, in the objects you buy and in the drivers for money. It's about going deeper. And that for me is such a key learning from today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that I find so fascinating about the dynamic between couples and people in relationships when it comes to money and the fact that a lot of people avoid these conversations because they are worried about how the conversation is going to go rather than actually having the conversation and dealing with the issues on in front of you. And it's something I find so fascinating. Couples and money and the dynamics are one of my favourite topics of all time when it comes to money. But I think one question I'd love to, to ask you, Dr Alex, is... At what point in the relationship do you think it is helpful to have those conversations about money to start testing the waters? The answer to your question is as soon as possible. But so many couples, so many individuals wait to have that conversation till much, much later. I've definitely worked with couples where I'm thinking of one couple in particular uh, they didn't even have a conversation about money until they got married. And then they said, oh, what do you think? Should we actually open a joint account? How should we do this? Right. <laughs> and I think the idea or if we are talking about a strategy of making our relationships healthier, starting earlier on any topic, whether it's sex, <laughs> whether it's intimacy, whether it's, you know, what do we like to do for fun? Having conversations about money should be equally important and should be brought up early on. But the reason why this is happening is something that we call the money taboo. And this is a cultural narrative that has been part of, of how we're dealing with money for eons. And in a way, we know more about the sex lives of our friends, but we never talk about money. And it's because of this money taboo. And I had a conversation with a colleague the other day, and it almost seems like this movement of financial wellness and uh, financial mindfulness is taking on the same trajectory as the sexual revolution did back in the 60s. We didn't always talk about sex, but now it's much more common. We feel much more open to talk about those those topics. However, money is still a topic that is not necessarily comfortable for us to bring up, even <laughs> with people who are dating, who are sharing a bed with. Yeah, that's totally mind blowing when you think about it like that, that like we're happy to like share a bed with them and to wake up next to them. And yet we won't talk about what's going on inside our bank account. But one thing I would love to just get your take on is that there is definitely a perception over here in the UK that 
we are worse at talking about money than Americans. I think Americans have a bit of a reputation for being a bit more open and bolder about these conversations. But it sounds from what you're saying, like there is still a big money taboo in the US as well as in the UK. And maybe it's a Western cultural problem more widely than just being in this country. I can see how you can see that Americans are more sort of bold about their opinions and uh, how we speak. But the money taboo is still a major, major issue here in the States. And that's really, you know, has a highlight of a conversation about cultural narratives that impact our, our money. And a lot of times when we work with our clients, we actually break down money conversations into four different parts. And I actually call them money languages, practical, emotional, cultural, and spiritual. And the reason why that's such an important topic for me is especially the cultural one is because I'm actually originally from the Soviet Union. I grew up in Russia and moved to the States in my teens. And I didn't speak English whatsoever. I only spoke like six words of English. And I vividly remember when I went to school and kind of got lost and uh, couldn't get back home. I felt so alone when I couldn't ask for what time it is. And uh, luckily, I met some kid who spoke Russian and they got me home safely. However, that feeling lingered and stayed with me for a long time. And I never took for granted the ability to communicate and understand uh, my surroundings and people around me. And a lot of people feel very similarly when it comes to money. They feel like it's a language that they don't understand if it wasn't taught to them. But even if it was taught to them, it sometimes they feel like I'm just not good with numbers. I'm not good with money. And so speaking the language of money incorporates these other four languages, the practical language or financial literacy, the emotional language. How do we navigate the emotional stress part and what emotional strategies can we implement like an emotional budget and an emotional spending plan? And then the cultural narratives. How do we, what messages are we learning from, uh, you know, living in the UK versus, you know, living in the States? My clients who are from the Midwest have very different cultural beliefs compared to people who grew up in Los Angeles and New York. So that's a huge conversation about money. Uh, that language of money. And then the last one is a spiritual one, whatever you believe in. And it's not a religious conversation necessarily. But one example of that, for instance, is people who are in have a religious belief, believe in tithing. And I've seen actually tithing <clears throat> done in a self detrimental way, where they're tithing more money than they actually should based on their budget. But the religious belief, the belief that they want to give back and, you know, God will provide and uh, this is how they feel whole and good and a part of the bigger world um, is unfortunately, uh, if taken to an extreme, can really, you know, be detrimental to their overall financial well-being. 
I think the cultural discussion is so interesting here. I definitely also feel that as Brits, it's like we have big jokes in England, like you let people push in front of you in the queue and you just like stand there quietly, like tutting. You'd never say like, hey, like there's a queue. Like that's how suppressed like we are. And I think that, you know, in my line of work, I'm constantly trying to break all the stigmas and be outside of the box that is expected of a, of a British person. And I've done that in the sex and relationship sector and just a lot of things in my life I am very open about but it's really interesting that money is still one that I find difficult now what I find difficult about it is not coming from me I can easily tell you how much money I made this month what that client paid me what this client paid me etc etc but what I find that when I'm having the discussion and I put the number to it is that I'm worried about the impact it will have on the other person. I don't want to make them feel small or maybe they'll feel like, oh shit, well, I only made half of that this month. So like, I don't want to bring up any uncomfortable emotions in someone else. So I think that that's just so interesting, like tying the cultural piece back to the emotion piece, which is sort of the underlying theme of this entire episode. And I know that we're running short on time, so I would love us just to sort of tie up with a couple of actionable tips and tricks on like, how do you start to talk about this in your relationship? How do you start to talk about this with your friends? And how do you start to change this for your children, the generations that are going to come after you, that ultimately you are creating their future with every sentence and thought that you have? I'm going to just share like one thing that I always encourage people to do when it comes to having these conversations about money. And it's using a third party reference. So a cultural reference or something that you have seen, listened to, read to raise the topic of money. And this is relevant for like whether you're talking about in a relationship, whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues. I think everyone should be talking about money with everybody. But it's so much easier when you raise that topic in a non-personal way. I think a lot of people think when you say, let's talk about money, that I'm saying you should turn up to a first date with your payslip and be like, where's your payslip? I want to see it. And that is not what we're saying at all here. But it's about, I think, a lot of the time signaling to people around you that you are there, you're open and you're willing to have those conversations. And like you do in a lot of different areas in a relationship or a friendship, you build trust. And it's exactly the same with those conversations about money. And the more vulnerable you are, the more trust you're going to need. And so I think a lot of the time, going into that conversation and saying, oh, you know, did you watch that program? Or did you read that article about XYZ? Oh, I've listened to this podcast talking about money. Like, what do you think about that? What are your thoughts? You can start to open the conversation and show your willingness and you can then build up to a point where you're able to have those conversations where it's like okay so how much are you paid this is what I'm paid actually I think you should be being paid this or actually you know I think that your house maybe like should cost this or your renovations should do this or actually do you know that I was given £500,000 by my family. I wasn't but I wish I was to buy this property. Um, That's how I can afford it on my salary. If you see what I'm saying, you know, you have to build up to that. You cannot expect people to trust you with that information, which makes them feel vulnerable straight away. And there's so many people that are clamoring for everyone to be more transparent. But I think it has to be the two way street. And we have to remember that. I think, again, the earlier we can start these conversations, the better, because they're going to be naturally less emotionally charged. 
and having fun setting scheduled sessions, but having regularity of these conversations, whether it's monthly, if you want to have them weekly, that's great. If you just like to talk about money and your goals, what you want to build together, what kind of future you want to have. But the reason why it's, again, so difficult, aside from the money taboo, is that we are scared of not getting what we want and losing what we have. And it's exactly what Ellie was just talking about. We are scared that if we reveal to them what our deepest desires are, even financially, that they're going to somehow reject us and poo-poo the idea, right? So we have to be able to step out and have that conversation, become a little bit more brave, but also there are tools for having uncomfortable conversations. The thing that I want to mention here is the idea of triangulation. And in psychology, it's a term that we use when another person or another entity takes on the energy that is not being able to be communicated between the two partners. So it could be that I don't have uh, the gusto to tell my partner directly how I feel. So I'm going to tell somebody else and then that other person will be triangulated into our relationship. But actually, money is often triangulated into our relationship. And that's how we get into these power struggles Money becomes this tug of war between two partners. And by the time it gets there, it's tough to unwind and unravel that knot. So obviously, starting the conversations early and having contingency plans for how to resolve these issues is important. But having money dates is important. And one of the researchers that I love, Maggie McCoy, she always says, you know how we're... uh, when we were kids, we were told, never go to bed angry. Well, sometimes that's not, <laughs> that's not the best advice. Sometimes letting things be, coming back to a conversation that's really heated and triggered may be the best way. And one of the ways that we deal with that at Financial Psychology Center is this idea of a moratorium. Moratorium is basically like a cold word saying, I'm calling a moratorium which means that I'm not comfortable right now. I'm overwhelmed and nothing good will come of this conversation. So can we postpone until one hour from now, this evening, two days from now, next week, depending on gravity of the conversation. And so the rules of engagement have to be discussed within that couple. And once the couple agrees that one of the partners calls the moratorium, the other one obviously has to agree to abide by that rule and give the the other person the space. So I just wanted to provide some really practical tools for your audience to be able to have these really important conversations about money that can be triggering, but it doesn't mean that they're alone. There are tools to be able to reduce some of that emotional reactivity. Oh, amazing. Honestly, the amount of value that I've taken from this episode is incredible. I'm absolutely the least smart in this room. And I think that both of you have brought so much to this episode. I am so grateful. I mean, I think my key takeaways from today is that money is one of the biggest taboos out there, but it's actually the most overlooked one. I think people will always think that something like sex is far more taboo than money. And that for me has been fascinating. And I think my other takeaways are 
start gently, start early, start small. And I think that by starting in those increments, starting the conversations gently and compassionately is really important. But to do that, you need to have a level of self-reflection, self-awareness. What are your emotional drivers behind money? What did you learn about money? What did you learn from your parents? And also, ultimately, what are your biggest, deepest fears? And what are your biggest goals and visions? I think without looking back and reflecting, you can't often see what is driving you to these things that you feel that you have to get to. I love the idea of money dates. And I also think my kind of key takeaway from this is that if you can share a bed with them, you should be able to share details of your bank account and your money beliefs with them. And it's crazy. People jump into bed with people so quickly today. But you're right. These conversations are not happening until far too late. And it is causing deep emotional stress and I guess relationship breakdowns for a lot of people. So thank you. I am so grateful. I have no doubt I will be calling both of you up saying, please, can we do a part two? I will link all of Dr. Alex and Ellie's details in the show notes so you can find them, their practices, their social media, et cetera, et cetera, through the show notes. And once again, the deepest thank you from me to you and to everyone listening. I will see you next episode. Thank you so much for having me. And it was so great to chat to you, Dr. Alex and Louise. I'll see you soon. Thank you very much, Louise and Ellie. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. Bye.